Good morning. Welcome, everyone. I uh, am glad to be able to chat with you this morning, and uh, honestly, that's really what it is. It's a chat. I don't have a whole lot of things put together. Of course, that's always the, the story, but somehow Mother always has something to tell me. Uh, this morning, it, it is kind of a casual talk about kind of a general state of things. Um, I've got some, some news that some people know, and I'll share more about that. And really, the point of, of speaking this morning is to give all the background and churning thoughts behind some of the decisions uh, that are being made and some of the things that are being done over the course of the next few months uh, so that people can understand what's going on and that the, the rumors and uh, uh, assumptions can be minimized and uh, we can hang together on this. To start, I want to, of course, start with Hafiz in a poem called The Guardians of His Beauty. We are the guardians of his beauty. We are the protectors of the sun. There is only one reason we have followed God into this world, to defend laughter, to defend freedom, to defend dance and love. Let a noble cry inside of you speak to me, saying, Hafiz, don't just sit there on this moon, moonlit night doing nothing. Help place my heart into the friend's mind. Help, old man, to heal my crippled wings. We are the companions of his beauty. We are the guardians of truth. Every man, plant, and creature in existence, every woman, every child, vein, and note is a servant of our beloved, a harbinger of joy a harbinger of light. I'll never forget, um, it was these poems that kind of brought me, I guess, to my senses at some point in the 90s. I like to go back and think about, uh, actually, I kind of use it as a, 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 a uh, I don't know if it's a, uh, a measure of truth, but certainly a source of questions. I always like, uh, like, it, like when I try and think of whether something is good for me or not, I always think, well, if I go all the way back to when there was none of this man-made stuff around and I was just walking in the woods and I was hungry, would I eat that? You know, would, would that look good to me? And I like that time of purity that exists probably only in my mind, but I think also in the world of the beginnings in a lot of the religious traditions. A time where we just walked the earth in absolute innocence and, and absolute purity kind of fresh and new and just starting things. And to, to take a look and to try and reformat my ideas of religion, which is kind of what I'm working on right now, or, or I'm trying to manage new ideas that are being put into my head anyway, about the nature of religion, I, I wanted to do that test. And I imagined, what was it like before there was somebody who had a religion to tell me what it was? Uh, what, what was the world like before all of this began, before we had all these thousands-year-old traditions with staid ideas and deep practices and meaningful rituals? What was the beginning of this quest? The way I asked earlier, uh, last week before last, I was doing a class over at Riderwood, and I asked the question, if religion is your answer, what's your question? What are you asking? And uh, so we, we didn't go around the circle, but the people there in the group kind of shared. 
And uh, there were things like, well, it, it, it's, it's there for the answering the, the question, who am I? What is my experience in this world? Is there meaning to it? Is there a reason for it? What's my purpose for being here? What is the experience of life? Some saw their religion as a means of service, kind of an avenue for, for giving. A perspective for managing life, you know, something to, to help you face this wild unknowing that we're thrown into the middle of in rather a hilarious and fun way when you open up to it, how little we actually know. One might even say that there's not even one thing besides our existence that we know for sure. Religion is a means of dealing with the unknown, giving it a handle so that I can at least pick it up and start to study it, to look at it. And when I thought about that, when I started looking at these questions, if you look at religion as, divine, as, as, as defined by the questions it answers, as opposed to the answers it provides, you find the source of the unity of religions. You find that all of the religions and all of their diversities were there to ask the, answer this handful of questions. Who am I? What am I? What's my nature? What is... What am I supposed to do here, you know? There was a great game in the 80s called Myst on the computer. I don't know if anybody played that game. And there was a whole world generated in 3D that you kind of wandered around. And you, when you started the game, there was no objective. There was no nothing. You just were suddenly thrown on this island. And it was up to you to figure out what was going on just by the things that you ran into. And, you know, you ran into little clues and slowly a narrative of mystery sort of unfolded and you, you began to get a picture of what it was you needed to do. And I'm beginning to see religion as really being that way, you know, that here you are just kind of tossed out here and uh, told to go play, figure it out, you know. One of my biggest beefs with, with my religion growing up, one of my biggest angers is trying to solve this riddle that here was this God that supposedly loved me so much, who supposedly had no conditions on his warmth and his comfort for me, and yet had never hugged me, had never even said hello to me. And it actually had just kind of tossed a book out of heaven, it seemed to me, you know, with instructions on how to realize his love. And, uh, you know, I kind of looked at that circumstance, and I was like, Really? This, this really how I'm going to orient my life, <laughs> you know, that I'm going to fall in love with someone who just kind of is, is introducing me through a book. What, what would I think of my parents if, if that's how they chose to raise me, you know, just gave birth to me, left me in a box on the side of the road with a book of instructions telling me how much they loved me and cared for me and then just went on about their own business. <laughs> I mean, I, that ain't love. <laughs> that's not what this is about. So the search continues to try and find out uh, what, is, what is this thing called religion. Vivekananda says, No search has been dearer to the human heart than that which brings us to the light from God. No study has taken, us so, much, has taken so much of human energy, whether in times past or present, as the study of the soul, the study of God, the study of human destiny. However immersed we are in our daily occupations, in our ambitions, in our work, in the midst of our greatest struggles, sometimes there will come a pause. The mind stops and wants to know something beyond this world. 
Sometimes it catches a glimpse of a realm beyond the senses, and a struggle to get at it is the result. This has been throughout all the ages, in all of the countries. Man has wanted to look beyond, wanted to expand himself, and all that we call progress, all that we call evolution, has always been measured by that one search, the search for human destiny, the search for God. It's a it's a it's an overwhelming time that we run into most 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 interestingly, at least for me, most most of these occasions of thinking of God come when you're alone. And for most of them, for me, they happened after a, a, a wild night out and about when I come home to my dark apartment, empty, go in, stumble in, lay down in bed, and you're left in the quiet of, of what you have. And you're left to question. Really? Is this how it's going to be? Is this what we're going to do? Is this how it ends? You know, is it just just a continual cycle from here of, of trying to titillate the senses and trying to tickle the mind and trying to, to satisfy some undefined, vapid sense of need that's inside? In his writing on what is religion, Vivekananda goes on to say, how can we make the distinction between the living and the dead then? In the living, there is freedom. There is intelligence. In the dead, all is bound with no freedom possible because there is no intelligence. This freedom that distinguishes us from mere machines is what we are striving for. To be more free is the goal of all our efforts, for only in perfect freedom can there be perfection. This effort to attain freedom underlies all forms of worship, whether we know it or not. So we see that this religion, according to Vivekananda, is the search for human destiny, for the presence of God. It's the quest for perfect freedom. And if you go on to read some of his writings in this idea of freedom, you get caught up in it because you know it's to be true. All of your desires kind of flit around that idea of freedom. You know, in the beginning, freedom is defined for us as the ability to do whatever our senses want us to do because we identify ourselves with them. We think that we are them. So if, if, if the senses want a big, giant piece of cake, we want the freedom to eat the whole thing, you know? If it's a vacation, we want the longest vacation on the biggest carnival cruise ship to the most exotic location. It's this freedom, this, this infinity that's out there. It's, that, it's why you sit at the beach and look at this ocean, just huge, no fences, no boundaries, no ending. Or if you're a mountain person, you go and you look over that endless vista that you've climbed six hours to see, where you can see the clouds and the skies and the moons and the distant valleys and other mountains. And you wonder and you think about the time that you can do more. You know, it's the wanting to throw off the bounds of time, to live forever. You know, one of the saddest and most profound times of my life and probably a defining moment of my life was when I had to say goodbye to my best friend when I was 13. We'd been friends for about four years. Brigitte was her name, and we lived in Germany at the time. And uh, we did everything. We used to do all kinds of things. Actually, my very first lecture in a church was a description of this last day with Brigitte where... We had gone on and played this game island that we used to play in her mother's garden. We used to pretend that we were lost on an island and all we could eat was what was here in this garden and that the boundaries of the garden was the ocean. You couldn't go beyond that. 
And so I became very fond of rhubarb (laughs) and cherries because those were the two most abundant things in her garden. And her brother had built a little extension to their house that had a flat cement roof on it. We built a ladder out of things that we found in uh, just discarded actually in a farmhouse next door to get up on the roof. And so that was our our uh, little oasis, our our uh, shack on this island that we inhabited. So we had been playing this game this last day. I knew at three o'clock that afternoon I was going to go and catch a plane back to the United States, and I. Uh, it would be a very long time before I saw her again. And we were soulmates, and we were continuing on doing our very best to not think at all about this being our last day together, because you can't function like that. You can't do anything thinking about that. So we completely threw off our thoughts until we were sitting up and eating our rhubarb and our our bowl of cherries up on the roof. I'm going to lose it here in a minute, just warn you ahead of time. And we were sitting there and eating these berries, and from up on her roof, her mother's house was up on a hill, and we could see the entire valley of the surrounding village. And we got to talking about, oh, do you remember when we went over there, and that creek was there, and we rode our bikes like we were joining the circus? And oh, do you remember that time we hiked over there, and we found that weird mattress in the middle of the woods, and we ran away because we thought something was you know, coming after us? We had all these memories. And that was all good and fine and very sweet until we came to one place, which was a section of the woods we'd never been to. (laughs) And I looked at that and I was like, wow, (laughs) we're never going to go there. We're never going to be there. And uh, I remember the the amount of pain that came over me at that point and how silent we got. And really the silence, (laughs) sorry, I don't even know why I'm telling this story. But uh, the, the silence of that finality, you know, of not having that freedom anymore, to know there was a boundary, there was a limit that we had walked into. This is religion. This is the struggle of our life. What lies beyond that boundary? What possibilities of love laid beyond the boundary? What possibilities of joy and fulfillment laid beyond that? And this is our life, and this is what frames religion for us. Swamiji says, after so much tapasya, after so much austerity, I've known that the highest truth is this. He is present in all things. These are all the manifested forms of him. There is no other God to seek for. He alone is worshiping God who serves all beings. Humankind ought to be taught that religions are but the varied expressions of the religion which is oneness so that each may choose the path that suits him best. If you go below the surface, you find that unity between man and man, between races and races, high and low, rich and poor, gods and men, men and animals. If you go deep enough, all will be seen as only a variation of the one, and he who has attained to this conception of oneness has no more delusion to understand this oneness when you can see in an objective way that there's only a limited number of of permutations for mixing the five senses together. And there's only a mixed set number of permutations for the effect of those five senses on the mind. And when you take your name out of that equation, you realize that you are every man, that you are every woman, that if you were to jump in and inhabit the body and mind of anybody during the day, you would be quite surprised, or maybe not surprised at all, that their life is really not much different than yours. 
that the, the circumstances, the variations of the five, the variations on the senses that they deal with, whether they have a big house or a little house to go home to, it's still a house. Whether they have a big bed or a little bed that they sleep in, it's still a bed. Whether they eat five you know, fine foods for lunch prepared by two or three chefs on the back deck overlooking a veranda on a Riviera somewhere, it's still food. It's still a dish. And they still like some of it and don't like other of it. You know? At the end of the month, bills come. Whether it's a bill for a big flashy car in the garage or ten of them, it's a bill. And you've got to pay it. And you have to have that job to take care of that. There's not many permutations. There's not much surprise. It's only ignorance that makes us think that the other set or the other permutations of five in that person are different. But to realize, you know, whether it's on a walk in the sun that, or, or in your bed at night when you're alone, that you are everyone and everyone is you. And in that, not to find a despair, but to find a brotherhood and a sisterhood, to find the reason for love and compassion, to find the motive for service and the motive for teaching and the motive for hugging and loving. If you go deep enough, Vivekananda says every religion has a soul behind it. And that soul may differ from the soul of another religion, but are they contradictory? Do they contradict or supplement each other? And so you to go for the answer of this question, look again, what are the questions that people are asking that led us to religion? If religion is the answer, what was our question? When you go back to that, you see that the soul of religion can't be different. They can't be contradictory because they're answering the same question. They're providing tools. They're providing methods of study and scaffolding for an investigation, the same investigation, the same search, the same hunger, the same question that every one of us felt when we were tossed out on the plane of this world and said, go, figure it out. Find out what this life is. Do they contradict or supplement? That is the question. I took up the question, Vivekananda says, when I was quite a boy and have been studying it all of my life. So very important question to Vivekananda. Thinking that my conclusion may be of some help to you, I place it before you. I believe that they are not contradictory. They are supplementary. Each religion, as it were, takes up one part of the great universal truth and spends its whole force in embodying and typifying that part of the great truth. It is, therefore, addition, not exclusion. That is the idea. So we see that, talk, that Vivekananda had this idea that, that religions can only add to one another, that they're not contradictory battlegrounds, that they're not taking and fighting from each other. He doesn't live in a world of right or, and wrong or truth and untruth. He lived in that world of lower truths and higher truths. That we, as long as we live, his master told him, you are a student. Every day that you wake up, it's a day for learning and a day for understanding. A day for putting things together and building something beautiful, only to have it fall down and let you start again, realizing you've lost nothing. Because you gained from the experience of trying and you gained from the experience of failing. And together, everybody moved forward. People of many religions and many traditions sought out Ramakrishna. They sought him out for his teaching, 
including Hindus, Muslims, Christians, and even atheists and humanists. His small room at the Dakshineshwar Temple on the edge of Calcutta became a gathering place for people of various creeds, various castes, races, and ages, both men and women. He didn't seek conversion, but called people to a deeper connection to God within the fullness of each of their faiths. This mixing together he found in Thakur. You know, Ramakrishna, you have to remember, he sat as a young boy at the feet of this man, and he saw all of these people come for questions. And he saw Thakur through, through simple stories, through lovely little parables, through jokes, through mimicking, through playing, through laughing, teaching all of them about that freedom, about that oneness, about that universal quest for God. So that in the same room, you could have many castes, you could have many genders, you could have many uh, religious ideals, you could have many different uh, classes of people. And he taught them what? That it's your love for this quest that makes you brothers and sisters. It's the fact that you have a question that you're trying to answer that makes you fellow pilgrims in the world. And that idea spreads far beyond that room. That it's everybody's longing for infinite love. Everybody's longing for infinite grace. Everybody's longing to not have a fence that prevents them from spending time with their best friend doing the best things possible together forever. And that's the dream and the idea that makes us one. It's the quest and the hunger for the answer to that question that makes us compassionate, that makes us loving. Because I am every man, and you are every woman. And what you feel, I feel. And what you hurt for, I hurt for. Whether the names are different and the faces are different doesn't matter. They're the same relationships. My relationship with my mother is your relationship with your mother. Your father's voice is my father's voice. My brother's concerns are your brother's concerns. My sister and your sister. We had the same fights you know, and the same growing together. And we've all come to Thakur, to Ramakrishna, together to hear these words and to find out about this dream and to find out what its answer is and where its stability is and what's going to make us whole, what's going to make us one. Swami Sharapmananda, the Assistant Secretary in Dhaka, he writes this, or is quoted as saying this in an interview, Sri Ramakrishna thought that the world's religions had become limited and confined, and he wanted to draw attention to the, to the potential divinity in all people, and to show how this could be manifested through every action and every thought. He wanted to contribute to a world where people can live following their own religions in harmony, and by following one's own religion, one can serve the masses from the essence of religion because God dwells in everybody's heart. So service to human beings is service to God. We know that Thakur said that the highest form of worship, the highest form of worship is to serve another living being. He doesn't even limit it to human beings. You know, Again, that, that brings up that poem from Hafiz that I find so particularly touching. Some little scruffy street dog comes up to him, wagging his tail, and in his poem, he bends down and scratches his chin and whispers in the dog's ear, My beloved, I'm so glad you've come to visit me today. 
you know. How lovely a life is that sees that oneness. How lovely a life is that sees that togetherness, that sees that common quest, that understands that the person on the bus next to you isn't going to make money. They're going to try and find their freedom and doing what needs to be done along the way to take care of things. And the two of you sitting on that bus, you know, or on that train or on that subway are on a common quest and a common goal and can help each other, can touch each other, can inspire each other, can encourage each other. And when you begin to see your life that way, you become religious. You join that one eternal religion, that Sanatana Dharma, where your worship is your love, where your practice is your life, where your church is the seat you're sitting in wherever it is, and your temple is the sky over your head that reminds you of the infinite possibilities of your nature, of your soul, of your beloved quest for God. Swamiji himself became the general president of the mission and the other office bearers were also elected. The rule was laid down that the association should hold meetings at the house of Balaram Babu every Sunday at 4 p.m. So there you have it. Weekly meetings go all the way to the beginning for us. <laughs> Needless to say that Swamiji used to attend these meetings whenever convenient. When the meeting had broken up and the members departed, addressing Swami Yogananda, Swamiji said, So the work has now begun this way. Let us see how far it succeeds by the will of Sri Ramakrishna. Swami Yogananda, you are doing these things with Western methods. Should you say Sri Ramakrishna left us any such instructions? <laughs> Swamiji, well, how do you know that all this is not on Sri Ramakrishna's lines? He had an infinite breadth of feeling, and dare you shut him up with your own limited views of life? I will break down these limits. I will scatter broadcast over the earth his boundless inspiration. He never instructed me to introduce any rites of his own worship. We have to realize the teachings he has left us about religious practice and devotion, concentration and meditation, and such higher ideas and truths, and then preach these to all men. The infinite number of faiths are only so many paths. I haven't been born to found one more sect in a world already teeming with sects. So we see he had a very particular vision. <laughs> particular in the sense that it's, he was particular about its unparticularity. <laughs> you know, many of the disciples, when he was first starting and going out and doing his, just as that bomb slowly exploded in the world around him, they had all kinds of questions. Why are you emphasizing service so much? How come we're not doing more meditation? Are you sure that we should found an organization? Who's in charge here anyway? You know, how do we know that what you're saying is right? You're following Western ways. What's, what's up with that? You know, they had all those ideas because our tendency, what, is towards smallness. Why? Because we can manage smallness. We feel comfortable in smallness. If we have our boundaries well established, then we know we don't have to touch what's on the other side of the fence. We don't have to deal with it. We're here, we're comfy. Our doghouse is our home, our happiness. So he's fighting that from the very beginning. This idea, you know, of a broad religion that he came and he, and he taught in, in, in terms of, of openness and in terms of freedom and in terms of, 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 of knowing the beloved. In his final address at the Chicago uh, meeting, 
He says, much has been said of the common ground of religious unity. I'm not going just now to venture my own theory, but if anyone here hopes that this unity will come by the triumph of any one of the religions and the destruction of the others, to him I say, brother, yours is an impossible hope. Do I wish that the Christian would become Hindu? God forbid. Do I wish that the Hindu or Buddhist would become Christian? God forbid. The seed is put in the ground, and the earth and air and water are placed around it. Does the seed become the earth, or the air, or the water? No, it becomes a plant. It develops after its own law, the laws of its own growth. It assimilates the air, assimilates the earth, excuse me, and assimilates the water. It converts them into plant substance and grows into a plant. Similar is the case with religion. The Christian is not to become a Hindu or a Buddhist, nor a Hindu or a Buddhist to become a Christian. But each must assimilate the spirit of the others and yet preserve his individuality and to grow according to his own law of growth. In the Parliament of Religions, if it has shown us anything in this world, it is this. It has proved to the world that holiness, that purity, and that charity are not the exclusive possessions of any church in the world, and that every system has produced men and women of the most exalted character. In the face of this evidence, if anybody dreams of the exclusive survival of his own religion and the destruction of others, I pity him. I pity him from the bottom of my heart and point out to him that upon the banner of every religion will soon be written, in spite of resistance, help and not fight, assimilation and not destruction, harmony, peace, and not dissension. These are the ideals of our beloved Thakur, our beloved Mahan Swamiji, and it's what we're trying to unfold and what we're trying to manifest. Now, I've run through all of my, my aligned scriptures here. So I, this is just between you and me at this point. I'm going to go again uh, on another leave of absence, as it were, for six months up to uh, Holy Cross Monastery. Now, I won't be insincere. That six months could turn into a year. It could turn into a forever. I don't know. I'm going with an openness. Because these things are mixing in my mind. And it's not that I feel contrary or contradiction to the way things are being done or that there's any unhappiness or discontent in that. But there's this nagging idea that I want to investigate. Now, I'm going to throw a lot of I's and me's in here, and I'm very uncomfortable with that. So I apologize ahead of time that ego is forming around it or ideals and whatnot are there. But nonetheless... I want to go and explore some things. One, that all religions are true. And that what, what Takor came to express to us were those ideals of religion. That religion is freedom. Religion is the quest to know, to understand, and to see. And that worship is service with one another. And I want to take this Sanatana Dharma, this eternal religion, identify it, to understand exactly what it inculcates, and then to go like Takur, you know, when it says that many people from many different traditions sought out his teaching, including Hindus, Muslims, and Christians, and that he wasn't looking to convert them. 
and Vivekananda had no intention of starting yet another sect in a world of sects. You know, in one sense, you can look around and you say, well, that's sort of what we're doing or sort of what it looks like, but only in a small way. You know, Thakur's movement is in every religion. Thakur's movement in this world is in every heart that opens to him. It's in every way, any set of eyes that are looking to see beyond the apparent and to look at the eternal. And so I'm going to want to branch out in that area. I want to go back to my birth tradition because we left on very bad terms and I have to make up. I have to set things to peace in that struggle. And in doing that, I want to take a whole new uh, bundle of beautiful things that, <coughs> that I found here. <laughs> I have no idea where, where this emotion is coming from, but there it is. To take, uh, to take these beautiful ideals uh, from Takur and Ma, this, this wonderful uh, practicality where you can learn more about religion from paying attention to your day than you can from any set of scriptures, where you can learn more about worship in making yourself uncomfortable in service than you can from any austerity or, or any spiritual practice, and that you can do more to see God by learning to, to manifest love in your relationships that are already with you, and then eventually to push beyond the ones that are already with you into new ones and to make it change the way that you spend your day so that we stop seeing the differences that make us alone, so that we stop assuming that everybody's got their own agenda and that it's different from mine, but to understand that all of us are looking for the same answer to, to the same question, and all of us are finding it depending on what God has made available to us and what God has shared with us. So I want to see that and bundle that notion and I want to go into a, into a, a Christian environment. <laughs> and at this point, I kind of wish there wasn't a recording of this, lest somebody up there hears it. But I have this, I have this notion, you know, that to return the most beautiful things that that God incarnated as Takor to remind us of, to remind the heart of my birth religion of the same truths of the oneness of all things, of the service of God in one another, in having a world of hearts that are built on a unity of searching and a unity of understanding, a unity of love, to be tied up together and bundled in the Father, as Jesus said in his last prayer on earth, that we might be one in him as the Father is in him and he in the Father and the Father in us. <laughs> I wanted to diagram that. I never... Never could, too many arrows. But this notion, and so my going up to, to Holy Cross and to spend time with the brothers there, it's a Benedictine, there's, there's several interesting things about them. They're a Benedictine order. St. Benedict lived in about 300 AD, before there were any multiplicities of types of Christians and before they had learned that they could fight and separate endlessly. Uh, they lived in a wonderful uh, unity of that time and, and a much more broad way of thinking about things. And St. Benedict had his realization and a certain group of men followed him. So that was AD 300. Now the interesting thing is, is that this Episcopalian, this, this Benedictine order is in an Episcopalian church. I didn't know that was possible. First, because I didn't know Episcopalians had monks. <laughs> but second of all, because 
Benedictines are by and large Catholic. And so I was very fascinated when I first went up there the first time for the weekend to find out that they were Benedictines, but that they were under the auspices of the Episcopalian Church. And so I said to them, how is that possible? Do they talk to you? <laughs> Do the other Benedictines recognize you as a Benedictine order? And they, surprisingly to me, and this is, this is some of what is sparking my enthusiasm, is the qualities that I'm finding in this particular monastery up there, that, uh, that yes, they are in fellowship with all of the other Benedictines, uh, and that any Benedictine order uh, can be founded in any, uh, they do require it to be a Christian group, to, not surprising, but that anybody uh, can, can start a Benedictine chapter. And uh, what's special about Benedict really is about his community life. Uh, he saw community as practice. And uh, so the community really uh, is careful about taking care of each other. It's one of my favorite things that I found out up there and one of my favorite things that I told them about themselves and one of my favorite things to, to remember, and this is a lovely challenge to everybody, in three months that I spent with them, I never heard a single brother speak ill of another brother there. Never heard a single ill thing said about anybody else around. I was so touched by that and so surprised uh, by noticing that in its absence, because it's not something you would notice because it's not a thing, it's the absence of a thing. And to have that kind of love for each other. And they shared with me when I first got there, one of the brothers shared with me uh, that they as a group are very concerned about the state of Christianity. They feel like Christianity has lost something. And they're kind of heartbroken, as, uh, as is the case, with the condition of what Christianity has become, with what it's become known for in this culture, you know, uh, that it's becoming very much about, you know, lines and politics and beliefs and structures that really are not founded on love and the attitudes and the feelings of Christ. And they, they feel like part of the mission that they've taken on as a group is to try and find out what they've forgotten, to try and find out what they've missed, what has degenerated, and is there any way uh, that they can build on that and, and return to, to what they believe is a higher teaching. Now, I don't... I'm not one to know the ways of God, but I find it interesting that they're running into that idea and shared that idea with me on my first visit up there. And that, you know, having come from that tradition, I'm well aware of its shortcomings and its, and its corners and its edges and its sharp angles. And uh, that in Vedanta, I have been reminded in a beautiful way of what our relationship with God is what our relationship with the beloved is and what we hope to accomplish in that. And that this is in fact not only what many Christians are, you know, I'm not in a place where I can say these things, but I'm barreling forward. That, that many of us as religious people, let's put it that way because it's not Christian, it's everything. As religious people, our religion has become a thing. It's become something with boundaries something that's become limited and small that we can easily handle and manage and judge and, and use in an egotistical sort of way to define ourselves. And we've begun to define ourselves with something that was meant to do the very opposite, to break your definitions of self, to set you free from your smallness and from the narrowness of the nature of the mind. You know, Vivekananda says the mind just does two things. It distinguishes, it looks for differences, and it categorizes. 
puts those things in order based on those differences. So it's no wonder this is what we do to religion, you know, that this vast, beautiful uh, vision of oneness goes into a mind that instantly is looking for differences and then building little categories. So we live in, in these little mansions of mind, these little structures of mind that have separated us all from each other on many different levels, on our sexuality, on, on the way we dress, on the money that we have, on the country we come from, on the colors of our skin, the colors of our eyes, the curliness of our hair, for crying out loud, you know. We break everything into these little pieces. And then those, the, that application of, of, of aversions and detractions come into play to give a, a bang to those false ideas to give a punch to those, to those false notions of separation. And then things become what they are. We get into the situation that we're experiencing from day to day where there's, there's all kinds of name calling and battling and, and pain and insult and separation and stone throwing and nobody can hear anybody. Everybody's yelling about their own rightness all the time and nobody's remembering that they're searching. Nobody's remembering that they have questions that can't be answered, that are bigger than the day-to-day, -day, that are bigger than the petty things of life. Forgetting that we share those questions and forgetting that we share that wonder, we forget about the other things that we share, the ideals of love, the ideals of nurturing, the ideals of compassion, the ideals of service. And in that, and in that forgetfulness, we lose sight of our own selves and we're left to cry alone at night wondering what are the answers to these things that's what led Swam, uh, Hafiz to write this poem very short but my very favorite one of all of his poems because I think it says it the best the subject tonight is love and for tomorrow night as well as a matter of fact I know of no better topic for us to discuss until we die you know uh, Swami Prabhudananda, I mention him all the time, and I'll mention him again in the same way. We had this wonderful thing every year in San Francisco, uh, this uh, annual retreat. And it was an interfaith retreat. So, uh, and, and they always drew like a, a thousand people. Gosh, the biggest one we ever had was like 1,200 people. And he would always get up and always say the same thing at the opening lecture every year. He says, certainly there are many differences between us today. But today our task is to talk about the things we agree on. And he says, I want you to do an experiment. It is my suspicion that we have so many things that we agree on that if we focus on talking about them, we will not have to run into the things that we disagree on. <laughs> and, you know, that's the truth. In all the differences of, these, of, of religious experience in our life and, and, and the difference in religious communities around the world, we're always talking about differences. You take a class on world religions at the university, and what do they talk about? What's the difference between a Hindu and a Muslim? What's the difference between a Christian and a Buddhist? Comparative religions, what do they compare? The differences, you know? All of these things. World religions class, you know, if you spent time, what do they have in common? There is a vast study of what these religions have in common. What is the point of their practices? A vast, uh, a vast pointer at, at, at a unity, a singularity. You know? What is the outcome supposed to be? Unity with God. You know, a blessed life. 
a, a full human being, you know, to take that idea and to run with it. So I'm going to go up to this monastery for a while and see see how it goes. Uh, at this point, uh, I, I get to teach my first uh, series of lectures up there, November second to the fourth. I think it is. It's called Vedic Christianity, and it's doing what we've done, what I've done here a few times is taking this idea of the Sanatana Dharma and teaching all of its principles through Christian scripture alone. Uh, because, you know, I, I take a lot from Thakur in the fact that he, he met with people from different traditions. And in, in, in the great master, in the introduction, we hear that, that all of those people that came to him from all these different traditions, they all uniquely believed him to belong to their own tradition. And so when I take that idea, there's, there's several things that are, that are kind of running through my mind. The idea that, that, that Vivekananda says the one thing that India has to give to the rest of the world is this notion of unity this notion of oneness, the ultimate Advaitic ideal. That that's the gift of India, he says. He says that uh, he, didn't, he didn't come to start another sect of Ramakrishnians, you know, that he came here teaching, teaching principles, Vedic principles, that he didn't come to, to teach the particular practices of, of Ramakrishna. The fact that people from all different traditions came and, and thought that, that Thakur belonged to their own religion means that Thakur could teach what he thought was important through their own traditions and through their own uh, 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 stories and mythologies. That he didn't want Christians to become Muslims or Muslims to become Hindus or Hindus to become anything else, but that he wanted a Christian to be a better Christian and he wanted a Hindu to be a, header, a better Hindu and a Muslim to be a better Muslim. And so... Part of my thinking on this is when I look around, I think this is a great area of exploration. I would hope, I, I'm hoping that it falls into the context of the order and to their interests, because it's, it's, it's these points that I think allow for, an, for a different investigation, because I don't think there's many Christians coming here to be better Christians, and certainly not many Muslims coming here to be better Muslims. You know? And that very much here we are about Ramakrishna as we should be. Because, my Lord, there is a beautiful ideal in our beloved here. In every way, that is fine. So it's not a counter to what we're doing that I'm interested in exploring these things or ex interested in maybe stepping out of bounds a little bit, but an, but an interest in an expansion. Because I believe that the ideals of the Vedanta, the ideals of this Sanatana Dharma, are urgent and are necessary in this culture in particular at this time. You know, and that it's and that it has to get out there in a quick way, in in and in a timely fashion that doesn't allow for them to have the time to get over the cultural differences and all of the cultural obstacles that it would take for them to come directly to Thakur to learn. You know, that ideas of Kali and Durga and Shiva and whatnot are not things that they're going to be able to have time to understand and overcome their fear and, and misunderstandings about. And to bypass all of that necessity by taking to them their own beloved scriptures that they already have a relationship with and opening their eyes to this beautiful Sanatana Dharma, which lies hidden in their scriptures, which lies misunderstood or not observed in their scriptures. Because frankly, this, <laughs> this is one of the things I wish wasn't recorded, but you know, Christian scriptures are a mess. <laughs> I say that, you know, having a long history with them. 
I mean, it's a collection of 66 unrelated books and letters in a single volume, you know, just just tossed in there. There's books of law, there's books of poetry, there's books of history, there's wisdom teachings, there's allegories, there's personal letters, you know, there's, there's uh, wonderings and studies. There's all kinds of things all put together in there. But nobody ever gave the overarching summary of what is religion. You know, what is the context of this teaching in the world, not just according to the Jewish tradition and the geographic position of its original teachings? How does it fit in with what already has been done by God and what has already been learned uh, by, by humanity as a whole? And so I'm interested in exploring those ideas and to give, and to give uh, back the essence of religion, <laughs> if you can imagine, I would even say something like this, uh, to, to my brothers up there in, at, at, in the Order of the Holy Cross. They have 6,000 people a year that come through uh, their retreat center there. And the brothers, I'll be giving four of these, uh, at this point just tentatively, four of these weekend uh, retreats a year up there. So it just seemed to me like a wonderful opportunity to be able to meet a, a huge number of people and to be able to present these ideals and these ideas uh, way outside of the boundaries and contexts of Hinduism, you know, or of the Vedanta. Uh, and to do it in such a way not to rob Vedanta of its credit, because I don't think Thakur cares at all about that. You know, not to not to rob India of its place of greatness and recognition. I don't think that, that that India needs to care about that. You know, that's already given. It's already clear. But to hand this Sanatana Dharma, this jewel, to our brothers and our sisters in a way that they could take it without fear, that they could take it without trepidation, and that they could take it in trust, that, that God is everywhere present and always perfect and that he's working to bring us to this notion of oneness. That all of, certainly all of the, the, the marches of history can be summed up in that. That we're looking for freedom. We're looking for unity. We're looking for wisdom. And I'm looking for a way to spend this life <laughs> in pursuit of those things for myself and for us together. And so my doing this uh, and leaving is in no way any kind of statement contrary to our, our friendship, our uh, own unity, and our own quest <laughs> for that beloved. So <laughs> let's take a moment to think about these things. <laughs> I want to mention also just a few things that Mother reminded me of is their own uh, at the center up there at the, at the Holy Cross, the ways that they, they showed respect to all of us and to myself uh, were quite extraordinary. I remember my first weekend up there, I was out walking in a garden with, uh, with Aidan, one of the younger monks, and he took me up to Brother Lawrence, who was there with his walker and was actually picking a flower and introduced me as Swami uh, Chid Brahmananda, uh, that I was a, uh, uh, a sannyasin of the Vedanta Society. 
And I remember the way that, uh, you know, Brother Lawrence is 92, 90, 92 years old, I think. And he looked at you, you know, with that aged wisdom <laughs> of being 92 and a monk. He looked at me and he looked me up and down. And he looked at Aiden and he said, a monk is a monk. <laughs> you know, which I really appreciated. They asked that I wear my Garawa while I was with them up there. And that I, you know, the way their church is structured is like all the people sit at about the back third. And then there's these pews where only the monks sit to do the chanting and the singing. And then up the front is where the altar is. So it was very visible. You know, I was there in front of everyone wearing my Garawa. And they fully supported my talking about Vedanta and uh, were very open to all of these teachings. They kept asking me, did I want to go by Swami Chidbrahmananda or what did I want to go by? I told them Vance, you know, uh, and <laughs> the reason for that is because every single person that I would ever be introduced to, I would have to go through this long song and dance about Swami Chidbrahmananda and what, <laughs> what that means and what am I doing here. So I, w I took the easy route and just went with my birth name with Vance so that the questions, then I could provide answers as the conversation went on. Uh, in that way. So uh, they've been very open to that. Uh, you know, when I told them that I, that I saw God as mother and referred to God as mother all the time, the monks there, when we started talking about God, or when they started saying things about God, would refer to him as mother uh, when they were talking to me. So uh, there's a beautiful spirit there, which is why I'm interested and why I think that this has a fruitful potential and a wonderful possibility of, of, of building some real bridges uh, between uh, these ideas and, and Christianity for all of us. So they're very eager, uh, and I say all of that also to let you know that they have a very large guest house. I think it has 200 rooms, and that uh, any of you are welcome there. You know, Any of these, if you want to come up and do one of these series that I'm doing up there or anything else, uh, you're welcome. And as my guest, there's no charge. If uh, <laughs> otherwise, it's ninety dollars a night up there. So uh, all of that. <laughs>